0: listen to flux pod my name is matthew repetua this episode features the uh, canadian writer and social media maven jill Kryeski, and this is kind of a a hangout episode we're going to talk about a bunch of things mainly uh there are topics that uh jill mostly chose so uh just vibing on her ideas so we start with saint vincent and her general disdain for jack antonoff we kind of go sideways into the abuse allegations and charges against Marilyn Manson and Rye. Uh, we get into, you know, late period U2. We're both big U2 fans and kind of wrap on a discussion of uh, what Jill calls the Foo Fighters Industrial Complex. So uh, I hope you enjoy this one. I think it's a, a fun time. Uh, just a reminder that to get all the episodes of the show, you want to hit up uh, patreon.com slash fluxblog. Uh, just wrapped up a big uh, Sonic Youth series there of a, kind of an audio essay series they're very audio rich kind of a history of the band and you know got some other cool things coming up over there and you know also just you know whether you want to do that or not uh, if you like any of these episodes, you like the show in general, tell other people about it. There is no like advertising or machine behind this. There is no corporation. This is an entirely DIY production as is pretty much everything associated with Flux blogs. So, you know, word of mouth matters a lot. Means a lot to me. So, you know, without further ado, let's get into it. This is Jill Kryski. Jill, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, I am Jill Krajewski. I'm a freelance uh, music writer and critic. I've appeared in Vulture, Pitchfork, Noisy, uh, among others, and I'm also a senior social editor at Vice.
0: Wow. And uh, Toronto pop culture uh, royalty?
1: (laughs) Yeah, you could say that. You could say that. (laughs) (laughs) I'll take it.
0: I'll say it. Um, yeah, so today we're just going to kind of do kind of a hangout episode and kind of talk about a few, some some music news things, some current things going on. Uh, the first thing I think we both want to talk about is the Halsey making a record with Nine Inch Nails. And we're both very big Nine Inch Nails fans. I'm just curious, like, are you a Halsey fan?
1: Yeah, with, with Halsey, and is it Halsey or Halsey?
0: You know, I... I I think I, I default to Halsey, but, you know, I don't know. I mean, she's named after a street I walk by all the time.
1: Oh, amazing. I, I, I mean, I suppose we can split the difference. Yeah. With, with Halsey, um, I have seen her at, in like the basement of an HMV, like six years ago for work and i i don't know her catalog as well as like side b of the fragile but i did listen through it all since um it was announced that she was working with trenton atticus and i was like you know what this this makes sense she's gone for like this like really dark gritty production on her first two records. Her last record, it seems like it was influenced more by like, oh, like the 90s guitar stuff, like early 2000s guitar stuff that like Alanis Moore sets on it. But like with her first two, I, I understand why um, Trent Reznor, I guess Ross would be like involved in that world. Uh, yeah. If any, if there are any doubters, like just listen to Badlands and Hopeless Fountain Kingdom. And it's like, it's so there. They're, they're so speaking the same language.
0: Yeah, like I feel like it it makes sense aesthetically in the things that she's always done, but like my the wall I kind of hit with her is I just never really like any of her songs and I couldn't really tell you why Like, is this it just doesn't click with me Um, and I feel like there's also this kind of weird thing where like if I listen to Halsey, I feel like I shouldn't be like there is this kind of um, thing where it's like, oh, this is very this is for like a very specific audience. And I was about this recently in, the, in terms of like how people relate to Olivia Rodrigo and um, uh, Billy Eilish, where I think they have a similar thing. But everyone just felt like, no, 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 we want to be in this party, too. But I don't think that quite happened the same way for Hallie, even though she's like a very popular star. But it seems like her audience is more like specific.
1: Yeah. Does that wait. make sense?
0: Is that just my like my perception of this?
1: The way I see it, with Billie Eilish, Halsey, this this wave of ne- of next gen um, pop stars is it's it's not just like oh I'm into you because I like your songs or like this single rules. It's like is this aesthetic who I want to be? I'm the I'm not like everyone else person at this point in my life. And the artists who say I'm not like everyone else are like Billie Eilish, Halsey, Olivia Rodrigo. Like you have this trio of pop stars who aren't saying that life is so good, um, but they're saying that they're flawed and the human experience is messy. And like, that's the kind of stuff I would have really liked as a teenager at that point in my life. So
0: when, also- and you were a teenager, you were into, like, alt-rock stuff, right?
1: Yeah, like, I didn't, like, gin- get into Jonas Brothers or Jesse McCartney, like, even though they were on, like, posts, there were posters on, like, my my friend's, uh, like, bedroom walls, like, that was when I had, like, Bono on my bedroom wall, which was very uncool, um, In and this is the How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb era of YouTube, just for context, this wasn't, like, having a Joshua tree poster in 87, like I or
0: Bono and the fly get up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I was very anachronistic. That was my reaction to not identifying with the pop music being thrown in my face in the early two thousands. Um, but like, if I had like a Halsey, Olivia Rodrigo, Billy Eilish at that time, like would they have been on my bedroom walls? Yeah. Cause that totally speaks to this feeling of like alienation or being like sold like Olivia Rodrigo says, where's my teenage dream? Like it's not there. Uh, I didn't find it in Katy Perry either. So I think it's How really- did you
0: respond to Lily Allen at the time?
1: Lily Allen, Smile was a good song, but I, I never really got into her- Um, but I've seen her since on like a bunch of British, uh, quiz shows. Like I think she was on nevermind the buzzcocks. I've seen her on Would I Lie to you. So maybe if I was a British teenager, she, I would have stuck with her more.
0: Right. Cause I was thinking like in that period of time, like who might've been in that niche. And yeah, I think like, yeah, it's a huge shift away from that. It's like, it is interesting to kind of see like how, like a lot of, uh, like nineties, all attitudes being filtered into the mainstream pop that exists now. Like, we've kind of come full circle. I mean, just even what you're saying before with um Halsey previously working with Alanis Morissette, like, this is like, it seems like her roots are very much in that kind of like mid to late 90s. Uh, I mean, I guess it makes sense chronologically, given that I think she's probably around maybe pushing 30. She's probably under 30.
1: Yeah, Halsey's a bit younger than me, and I'm <laughs> I'm pushing thirty, so she's got she's got uh, some time. Um, while we're talking about Halsey and Billie Eilish specifically, I think that like. I haven't seen any blowback as to Nine Snails working with her, but I, I recall when Billie Eilish was announced for being uh, the latest Shantos of the James Bond movie song um, for, what is it, No Time to Die. That that seemed to irk some long time, like, long-time, like fans of the Bond franchise and I'm sure cynically, I'm sure that some National Nails fans were like, what are you doing? Why are you producing this like millennial? And I think that that's such garbage with Billie Eilish. First of all, like it's always been in the canon of Bond songs to pick like, who's really happening at the time who's doing something unique and interesting if not a classic person like Tom Jones so we saw like Garbage doing the world is not enough which is like yeah they were they were especially in that moment like doing something unique and that's what the Bond franchise wanted to to wrap their hands around and I feel like she has
0: a good voice for that kind of milieu too because it's yeah. like dramatic but also kind of like a little edgy it just feels right i mean it seems like she could easily even swing towards like a Shirley Bassey kind of tone.
1: Yeah. So it like, it totally makes sense in the long game of what like the bond song means that it's Billie Eilish. Of course she's of the moment. And similarly with like Halsey working with, um, trend and Atticus, like she's doing something that's off the beaten path. And, uh, and yeah, if you listen to her records, it's 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 so there. It's that same dark atmosphere, lurching, low-end that I think, like... Uh, I'm not saying that Halsey's put out Three Nine Inch Nails records so far, but I think that, like, Nine Inch Nails would elevate what she's been going for, particularly on her first two records.
0: I agree. I think it, it's something that... Uh, it, it seems like a, a very smart way to level up and to also... Um, I mean, God, you can't ask for a better cosign. You can't ask for better instant credibility now than working with Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. It's just the uh, and just yeah. It, it's it, and all just really go from people like me who'd be like, oh, I'll, I'll check it out. Maybe to like, oh no, I really want to hear this as soon as it comes out. Uh, yeah. this, it just brings in a whole other audience. It's uh, it's audience growth without like really like changing anything fundamentally. Um, and also, and I feel like it's also just an interesting move for snails. Uh, um, you know, because, you know, they've obviously done a lot of this film soundtrack work, but I feel like in the more recent past, like doing like a Pixar movie and doing this is like reaching to audiences that they previously did not engage with at all. So it's uh, an interesting creative move for them that doesn't seem like a sellout move either.
1: Yeah, my theory for that is... Um... Trent Reznor said in interviews in the past that, oh, it was the working on film projects that rejuvenated his drive to do, say, a Nine Inch Nails album, because he went from this model of having uh, no constraints, free thinking, to, like, you need to evoke this particular mood in this particular scene. And even though that was a new creative challenge, I think he was getting at, like, oh, like, working with constraints, then gave him more inspiration for returning to that freeform world. So I think we're a few soundtracks and collaborations in that the juices have to be there for the next album. Like, I think, I think he's, it seems like 90 Nails, they've really settled into this good mode of working between projects um, so that nothing ever feels stagnant or forced. So I think if even the most cynical Nine Inch Nails fan is like, what are they doing here? It's like, no, this is part of the stoking of fires <laughs> for the next yeah. album. Like, this is good. I No matter how you look at it, it's good.
0: Well, he's talked about wanting to do something like this before. And I think to some extent, like he got there with like uh, How to Destroy Angels working with his wife. Because um, he, he, you know, it's this... I guess, like, more broadly saying, like, he, he'd like to do a record with with a female singer. And I think this is, uh, you know, it's, it's, and I feel like the difference between How to Destroy Angels and this is, like, that's still ultimately, like, his band. It's still ultimately, basically, <laughs> Nine Uh, But this is, like, Kalzi is in charge of this, you know? So, it like, ultimately, like, it's, like, a, more of a client relationship, a, like, a client collaboration that's more similar to doing the soundtrack work.
1: I honestly, I've tried to think about other times that um, Nine Inch Nails have worked with, like, femme voices. And I really can't trace it back much past, like, Mary Queen on How to Destroy Angels. Um, You have Karen O on the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo soundtrack when they- Oh, right, the
0: Immigrant Song.
1: Yeah, yeah, which I- I hadn't listened to it in a while and it came on Shuffle and it was like, okay, yes, Karen O in this in this like universe, totally really exciting. Uh but yeah, I I I think that it was due time to hear uh, a feminine voice against their production. If anything, it makes the the atmosphere, the anxiousness, it, it more heightened because of that contrast. So like Creatively, that's that's a really cool element to have in the mix.
0: And other times where you, he's like, well, obviously, if you go far back enough in time, there's past the mission where he's singing uh, harmony for Tori Amos, and that's that's an amazing song.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's that's so right. Oh, God, yeah. Imagine
0: that those two had made a record together. I mean, it still could happen, but I feel like those two would be very interesting to like really go head to head collaboratively.
1: Yeah, I. Th- this is where uh, I have to bring up the like the deep, the deep nudge nails web, the deep internet um, mapping of the Tory and Trent story, being that they were close friends, but apparently Courtney Love got involved mm-hmm. and. Uh, Trent said in an interview, it was like uh, having too many fingers in the pie. So uh, basically, what I've pieced together is Courtney Love is why we don't have Tori Amos and Trent Reznor collaborating more. So
0: I mean, there, there's one I, I, that was in Spin where he got like really overt in, in talking. It, it was he was a, it was like he was not holding back at all talking about like how much Courtney Love poisoned the, their friendship, their relationship, and. And Courtney Love was kind of in her phase of, like I must collect all of the rock stars of my time. So, or at, le- at least that's his impression. And yeah, I feel like there was such an incredible soap opera in that period of time that people should probably talk more about. Uh, this, this whole pantheon of, of uh, 90s alt rock stars who were just all entangled, or all each one of them has their own tragedy built into them.
1: Yeah, there's so much lore we never got because of like, I suppose there were forums in the 90s. Like I'm very much a social media uh, teen to adult. Uh, But yeah, like I feel like with social media detectives being as good as they are, like maybe they would have been more piecing together of all of these like 90s webs. I'm imagining the Charlie Day meme where he's just red thread over all these photos, like just finding the narrative. But if anything, it's lore is even more fun when it's incomplete. I think it's like, there's so many blank spaces that uh, fan forums can just (laughs) bond over.
0: Yeah. And now we just kind of have to like patiently wait for Courtney to snap and do the ultimate tell all.
1: Oh goodness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would, I would welcome that. I, I just, uh, gosh, like, she she comes out swimming, swinging, that's for sure. No pun intended. Oh, no, the Kathleen Hanna incident. Oh, no, that's a bad pun in retrospect.
0: There's so much. Like, her life is just so... She really... God, and then even to, like, the Courtney of today. Uh, someone was telling me pretty recently about um, the Sackler family trying to get her to come to some, like, fashion show that they were attached to. And... Uh, it was, I guess it was like, it was a, a daughter or something of the Sackler family and Courtney just being like, you realize that I'm like a, a, a recovering junkie, right? <laughs> and just being tremendously incorrectly infuriated by that offer. Like they wanted to pay her like a ton of money to do it. And like, Courtney oh, right. doesn't need money. She has the Nirvana catalog.
1: Catch me up. I'm in 1991 baby. Who's the Sackler family?
0: Oh, oh, so the Sackler family is the, they, they own a huge pharmaceutical company. They're basically like almost entirely responsible for the opioid epidemic.
1: Oh, no, that's weird. the company
0: behind like OxyContin and stuff like that.
1: Oh no, that's, uh, that's such a weird vibe. No. Oh yeah. Uh.
0: Rough stuff. Um, and then like, have you ever read the Courtney Love Grub Street diet?
1: I haven't do go that on. one.
0: Anyone should check that out. I love like the detail of Courtney. Love having someone make her a cake every day. Like she's literally the girl with the most cake.
1: Hey, I mean, the life imitates art. Oh.
0: What was the last record he produced with another artist? Was it the Sal Williams record from like the mid aughts?
1: I really don't know. Um, and
0: before that, obviously Marilyn Manson.
1: Yeah, no i I have so many thoughts on 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 that chapter. Uh, I will say it's it's disappointing that. Um, Tranreser hasn't said a peep about what's going on. It's like, well, you were around at the time, so yeah. what's up, buddy?
0: Okay, you know he knows a lot.
1: Yeah. But I
0: I I guess I understand in the sense that he probably would love to just not have anything to do with that part of his own life at this stage in time. Yeah. But yeah.
1: It's it's kind of like Like, you saying nothing doesn't make it go away. I get that Trent Reznor isn't as online as he was when he, like, decided Twitter was good and quickly realized Twitter was bad. But, (laughs) I, yeah, that's going to be something he has to confront. And uh, until then, fuck Marilyn Manson.
0: Oh, God, the Marilyn Manson thing is one of those... Weird things where it, w- it was always right there, and yeah, it's one of those things where the the press just you know for the longest time just rolls with it because ah ha ha it's Marilyn Manson, and then for a long time it's like eh, it's Marilyn Manson, and now it just gets worse and worse, and it just seemed like his his behavior got worse as he became less famous.
1: It was also so manipulative how a lot of his persona gave him cover to just say wild shit in an interview and then what that's his safety like it's my persona oh you don't really think I ate five rabbits with one sword do you it's my persona and then that gives him like another gaslighting tool um and it's just yeah it's it's inexcusable to be like, hey, it's my persona. That's why I did blah, blah, blah. Absolutely not. And it, I think it's also why, like, it was really slow to catch on, including from people like me who, like, I don't know, would hear the beautiful people at an NHL game growing up and be like, haha ha that's Marilyn. And no, there was just so much more evil that was so... Clear and I'm I'm really tired of and we saw this with Rye too where this is a guy where it's like oh but all my songs are about like intimacy and women and
0: there's like Can a you re- re- just remind people like what happened with Rye that that yeah I don't, think, I don't think I don't think a lot of people know that story
1: yeah right to to in a nutshell Rye or Michael Milosh this. Canadian musician who is is known for, like, really, like, intimate, sensual, uh, kind of R&B-tinged music, and...
0: It's a little Sade-ish, like, he always sings in this very high falsetto. I mean, I remember the first time I heard it, I just thought it was a woman singing.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And like this, this is where I'll tie it back into how personas manipulative. So not only was, was his, his gender sort of being, uh, guarded at first, but also his very age. So when you have allegations that, uh, he's not only an abuser, but abused, uh, girls, it's, it's so manipulative that, um, like, his age was hidden from the press for the most part. Uh this whole like, oh, I'm shrouded in mystery and I love women. I I think it was even um Pitchfork's review of his last record or previous record that that called him like some something along the lines of like unproblematic, like romantic R&B and it's like, oh no, there's a lot of problems there. Oh
0: god, right. I remember like when so this like Thing came out maybe yeah, I like think March or something. It was like earlier this year, and there was a Rye record that came out like slightly before because uh, it was a, it was a woman that he was involved with who he was like immensely abusive towards. I guess they were married as well, um, but yeah. she did like a a, sto- a a post on Instagram kind of outlining what had happened.
1: Yeah, and, that's right. That's but cool. there
0: was like a. I, can't, I wish I could. Remember, I guess I could just look it up right now. Yeah, yeah there was Nicholas. A, a bit, It was it was a Pitchfork tweet that is because I remember looking like did 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 Pitchfork uh, cover this yet and for a while the answer was no Um, but it was like yeah hold on I need I need to look it up because it had a really funny phrasing uh, in kind of a darkly ironic way.
1: This is also where I'd love to see more uh, (laughs) women and non-binary writers on a persona like Rye because. Uh, one of my one of my friends who's a writer Carly Lewis interrogated interrogated why all of his album covers are like women but not not like in a flattering way like very hyper focused on an element of their body without their head showing like like uh, uh, like that's uh, objectivity or objectifying to a T and um, yeah like for for Carly to have clued in on that being, feeling a bit off where a lot of men who've written about Rye haven't, that's that's where it's like, okay, I see why someone like Rye becomes more entrenched because a lot of people are just echoing back the sort of like the narrative that he wanted. And that narrative allowed him to continue to abuse women. I, I believe everything that's been said.
0: Um, I found the tweet. Oh, God. (laughs) This is like they're promoting the album review of the, the most recent Rye record. Yeah. Rye leader, Michael Malosh remains king of the most respectable, horny music possible.
1: Yeah, that's that's like the 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 coldest take now ever to to (laughs) respectably horny is just like vom to think about. I think
0: even just the idea of respectably horny is a very bizarre and weird concept that you could really poke at in a lot of very uh, unflattering ways. But right, but (laughs) yeah, that's just uh, it's it's almost like the Dewey defeats Truman of uh, music reviews.
1: Oh God, just, just like the worst, that's like, that's the kind of clipping you like take out of your portfolio. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I mean, I've had to do that too, where like I've covered, I did a piece for Noisy in 2016 on how to make venues safer spaces. And um, at the time I had interviewed Powerbottom because I wanted Mm -hmm. um, trans and non-binary representation in that piece. And um, I, yeah, for, for, for Ben and power bottom to have been exposed as an abuser, like that's a piece where I was like, I even like emailed noisy to be like, is there any way we can just like put an editor's note on this piece, remove power bottom. And so this still has some value and I don't know, they just, they just sort of like stuttered over it. Um, so yeah, that's a piece that I took out of my
0: portfolio. And you, the, and you were doing such a noble thing.
1: Yeah, and, except it's now like forever tainted because there's an abuser in it, and it's like, oh yeah. god damn it! Like this, this happened a few times um, to me, and uh, it's it's so infuriating. Uh, yeah,
0: it's, the power bottom thing was such a strange thing that happened because like when. Came out, they were just like right on the precipice of like the entire like media construct like going wild for the new record. They, like the crown was like about to be placed upon their heads, and yeah, it was, it was it's it's but it's one of the most uh, remarkable. Uh, everyone is backing away from at the at once uh, for the right reason, uh, but yeah, it was, but it, it's and you kind of. <laughs> There's like some good songs in that record that you're like, I don't want to ever hear this song again. This is too weird.
1: Yeah, some of some of the the thoughts passed around as like music Twitter tried to recuperate um, with with the shrapnel of Power Bottom. One of the sentiments that I really enjoyed was that like any sort of like validation or joy you experienced at the time, any sort of personal growth or insight you experienced through that music at the time is still valid. It's not that you're a fraud for finding some semblance of joy or, um, seeing yourself in that music that what you've gained is still valid. And I I liked that as a way of making peace with like, Oh, the good that you felt listening to their music. But at the same time, Um, I I have to agree with the sentiment where power bottom and this, this, again, it goes into persona being a mask for, for abuse for power bottom to self-market themselves as a champion of safer spaces and community where a lot of people who felt unsafe in, in like heteronormative spaces or, um. for, for for them to then be betrayed by a band that was saying, "Oh, we're not that. We're not that." That's that is extra salt in the wound,
0: right? And, and it's different from like a Marilyn Manson situation, where Marilyn Manson is telling you the whole time exactly who he is. Mm. It's yeah, because yeah, it, it, I feel like that kind of. Um, there's no betrayal. The betrayal makes it. So I, I think that another interesting thing about the power bottom thing relative to some of these others is that because it broke right before they really took off, before like everything was really clicking at the place, it's easier to just kind of shut it down. And when these things happen and the artists are more firmly established or, you know, the crowns already been put on their heads, you know, that's much harder to everyone pull back from even it does happen obviously people uh are much less likely to cover marilyn manson in a uh positive or even a neutral way now but you know it's the, when, when it's that small level or even like a rye which is like you know this kind of mid-level thing that you know you can just back away from it and it doesn't really change anything one way or another
1: yeah it's like the or, the musical
0: of- landscape i mean <laughs>
1: Yeah. It's like the level of success Rai has. It's, it's, yeah, he, he's not being kicked off of, uh, off of a huge throne, uh, at the same time. It's, it's yeah. With Powerbottom there'd been some good arguments that part of that like speed of, of shutting down their career path because of having an abuser, um, I've see I saw an argument that I think is worth considering. Where is that speed because they were they didn't have the crown on their heads yet, or is it also because of uh, this being a queer duo? Uh, so it's like when when you're marginalized identity that that was the argument that would this have happened for a rye like to to be a cis straight. White man in the situation instead, it, like with Rye, I'm not. I mean, maybe because he's off cycle, not on an album cycle. Actually, no, he just no, really
0: absolutely on the album. cycle.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, no. Ugh. January feels like a light yeah. year ago, but yeah, it's like I haven't seen that same widespread uh, kicking Rye off this. Cancelling Rye from that, that happened to Powerbottom. So I think like the intersection of identity is is a worthwhile argument that Rai has extra protections from from being like in the most privileged position imaginable in music. Like
0: uh. Right. Yeah, oh boy. So <laughs> Oh right, we were talking about nine snails and healthy.
1: Like, lazy. how did we get
0: there? Oh yeah, right.
1: Once, as soon as you mentioned Marilyn Manson, that whole Hellgate comes open. <laughs>
0: yeah. But ah, uh, oh, boy, I, let, let's switch gears. Let's uh, another thing that uh, you want to talk about was uh, I will quote the, the note you sent me: Saint Vincent's flawed push for mainstream success. I love dumb- and out in my fine Italian shoes. We're tight as a Bible, with the
1: pages look like glue. Yeah,
0: you did some time well, I did some time.
1: I I'm certainly not alone in this but after her self-titled album um I it's been harder for me to be excited about her and um even though that record Mass Seduction has a lot of cool moments um I love Sugar Boy I think that's really well produced like I love some some good old lurching production that seems a bit uh, disorienting. Um, and I wrote, I spoke highly of that record for Noisy's uh, year-end album reviews. It was in the top 10 of that year. But next to her self-titled record or Strange Mercy, it something started to feel a bit oh this this is it's a different that i didn't know that i liked and i think i've traced it to working with jack antonoff <laughs> right
0: because those those yeah. are the ones where she yeah
1: yeah I'll I, rip I think into- i
0: actually have a weird like almost like uh negative uh image version of this because like st- i like strange mercy but like the, the self-title one is definitely my least favorite of her uh regular albums oh my but goodness. i really love mass seduction and daddy's home I like Mass Deduction is probably my second favorite after actor. I'll probably always like actor the best. I have a lot of sentimentality for actor.
1: Wow. Okay. So we have we definitely like diverge at this at this point in the woods here. Uh yeah, my my favorites have to still be the self-titled record and Strange Mercy. Mass deduction. I like, and certainly among the other albums that year, like it felt like a top ten album to me. But against her own work, I that that like that creeping in of Jack Antonoff uh, it's just it felt like it feels like he dulls the edges of people he works with and I feel the same way about I'm like one of few people who thought melodrama was okay a fine record as opposed to an album of the year um,
0: and it, how do you I, feel about like how uh, the influence the massive influence he's had on Taylor Swift
1: Yeah, Taylor Swift uh, isn't an artist I follow. Not not out of anything, but like I'm Switzerland about Taylor Swift, so I don't keep up with her stuff. I've listened to 1989 is like the last record of hers that I heard in full, and it was like okay, I I just his production style I feel like is so low hanging through let's make it sound just a little bit 80s but still friendly enough to play on the radio now like
0: right and and now he's now now he's kind of moved away from like a a really super generalized 80s thing to a super generalized 70s thing
1: i hated his ripoff brings bruce springsteen song that he somehow even got springsteen to sing on
0: oh oh like his solo stuff the bleacher stuff i actively hate I feel like I I don't have the harsh opinion of Jack Antonoff that you do. I think he's actually a pretty good co-writer. He's a pretty good producer, but left his own devices. Oh my God. No, it's, thank you.
1: He just, he's emblematic for me of just like, uh, how do we get this on the radio? How do we get 50 ears instead of five ears on it? Uh, i I found Lord and St. Vincent's but work. is that
0: actually the case? Because, like I feel like if anything, he's been commercial kryptonite. Like he has not like like Lord was less successful commercially with his input. Like St. Vincent has, has not really been great for her new record to be like a real close collaboration. Uh, the Taylor Swift is Taylor Swift. She's gonna be Taylor Swift, no matter what. So I'm not really sure if like, and also like those are the Taylor Swift songs that like aren't on the radio. So I'm not sure. Like I, I think he might actually be more a creature of streaming.
1: I think he's a creature of, Oh, how do I get my own 1989? How do I get my own stadiums? I think he's literally a card that music industry plays when there's an artist they want to, to hopefully get to that next rung of the career ladder. Like I'm sure that.
0: Or or Lana Del Rey, I guess is the, is the fourth big name for him.
1: Ah, yeah. I. But they
0: were all successful before he got there. So like the, the thing that, uh, the thing about him, I always kind of like kind of side eye is that it just seems like his whole career after fun is jumping onto these like successful women artists uh, and gradually kind of like taking over in some way, not taking over fully, but like, you know, becoming like an increasingly bigger partner in what they do. But he does not ever seem to work with men. And so it really starts to be like <sighs> this thing that you be like, OK, it's cool that he works with these women, but it, it just seems like he does not do anything but work with successful women. So it starts to feel like he's glomming onto them.
1: Yeah, not only glomming on, but I've found like w- melodrama to me was less sonically interesting than her first record and uh, with St. Vincent. Yeah, she did. She, there were some great moments on on Mass Seduction looking back now. I don't recall if he produced every single track. So there might be some gaps where Mass was, Seduction,
0: like- he, he only has like a limited capacity on that. That's still mostly her he has a couple co-writes on that like Pills in New York I think. But um, oh, Okay,
1: yeah, New York I found overrated. So But there you the go. new
0: one is really more of a direct partnership. And he he is uh, the other major musician on it. Like he there's actually a lot of like things that he plays on that record where I'm actually like super impressed by his own playing. Um like it, he's a better drummer than I thought he was. He, he does some really good like uh restrained drumming on some of these songs.
1: Wow, sounds like he should get back to the kit then, and away from dulling the edges of interesting musicians.
0: <laughs> yeah. Here's a question though: uh, the the Jack Antonoff work with any male artist challenge. Who who do you think he should work with as a as another man?
1: I think he, like, a lot of men should work on themselves. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> kidding. Um, God, oh, I just... God,
0: that's, I feel like the last thing we want is just, like, Jack Antonoff just doubling down on bleachers.
1: I mean, at least he'd be in a vacuum. He would contain it, though, yeah. Uh, I wonder... Uh, crap. It's it's like asking asking me who Jack Antonoff should, Ed should work Ed Sheeran? Should this
0: work with Ed Sheeran?
1: Oh, God. I mean... Like put it this way, you can be a producer of mainstream commercial stuff and it can still be interesting and catchy like with Mark Ronson, but uh, Antonoff is no Mark Ronson to me. And I say that as someone who doesn't like Mark Ronson's work on that Queens of the Stone Age record. That was a weird curveball for me. Um, yeah, who the hell would I want? Jack Antonoff to work with? I don't know. Maybe a new fun record for old times' sake.
0: <laughs> Jack Antonoff, Justin Bieber. Ooh, that would be I, a weird combo.
1: Yeah, I don't know how I'd I'd feel about that. I I guess I'm I'm dumbfounded for an answer because I just don't want Jack Antonoff. I to think anymore. abstractly,
0: <laughs> I think the thing that he would want to do, given both his own musical strengths and his aspirations. So I think he would probably be like, I wish I could make work with someone and we can make uh, our own version of faith, the George Michael album faith.
1: Ooh, okay. Faith. Because now
0: he likes a certain level of minimalism and George Michael was really like a genius of minimalism. And obviously like the, the, that new song with Lord is really pulling from freedom 90, but like in a much more like dialed back way.
1: Now, now you're talking good pop production. I absolutely love Faith as a pop record, not just the title track. There's those really good tracks like Monkey, both the album and single version it's of just it. Wild aren't wild classics? Yeah, and it's a cohesive pop record. Like that's one where I'm so glad that I can listen to it front to back and that I spend time with it. Uh, yeah, Jack Antonoff producing a uh, Faith. That w- that definitely wasn't uh, the Lord single, but that was certainly <laughs> like a very 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 rough draft barroom napkin version of trying to do a faith. Or a when I night.
0: first heard that song, like the thing that really struck me is like, and it's one of those things where like I knew Antonov was on it even without seeing credits or anything because I just like the guitar part was like that's him. I know that I know how he plays. Um, but yeah, the, the guitar part of that sounds like trying to do the song faith. But then the, you bring in like the the choir and drum part, which is more Freedom ninety. Like I think that's one of the things with Jack Antonoff is that you really can see the math very clearly of, of what he's aiming for. He doesn't really have like the most nuanced uh, reference points.
1: Yeah, yeah. I don't know Antonoff. Whenever I hear his production style, I'm reminded of like. Will I Am from Black Eyed Peas answering a question. I think it was in the, one of the Rolling Stone pri- profiles, like right in their peak, like s- successful period. And um, if I recall, the interview asked Will I Am about, like, uh, so I've got a feeling, what's up with that? And like, this was honestly his answer. It wasn't like, oh yeah, I was so inspired, like partying in Hawaii. And then I wrote this track at 2 a.m. because I loved that night. It was his answer was just like, like a like a marketing whiz, like yeah, I wanted to do something that like really captured like this like general catch all feeling, and then it could be like licensed for commercials. Like that's that's an that's both an He's artist and a utility. businessman. Yeah, artist and a businessman at once. So I think that with Jack Antonoff, um, that's it's like I feel like it's almost more businessman moves than artistic moves because I find that like. Yeah, his the stuff he's on. He is working with people who, yeah, already have some level of success, uh, but they're not Taylor Swifts. And I I think
0: I I gotta figure he's very easy to work with because I can't think of any other reason why, like, songwriting or tours like Taylor Swift and Annie Clark would want to work with someone if they weren't someone they felt like they were getting something out of or they didn't enjoy just being in the room with.
1: Yeah, yeah. There's there's a a a musician I know says that within uh, his band there's this saying "good guy, bad band" or GGBB, and it's like even though artistically they're not good, like they're pleasant to be around and to run into, and probably very encouraging. Yeah, and then it's just the output that is that's that sucks. So good guy, bad band. (laughs) Uh, So maybe Jack Antonoff is a GGBB. Is, is Jack how-
0: Antonoff for you, like, the reverse Brian Eno? Uh,
1: like, <laughs> oh, you mean in terms of, like...
0: Or does like, really- Brian Eno would be someone who'd be like, oh, yeah, give it to me. Like, Brian Eno's going to make this people, this whoever he's working with, level up.
1: Yeah, I see what you're saying. So it's like the like the polar opposite of the brilliant to pleasant. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Where
0: Jack Antonoff's gonna like dull edges. Eno's gonna like make you go, "Hey, what if you just went a step further? What if you, you know, got more vibey instead of less vibey?"
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Eno Antonoff is not. Uh, I. But now that you mention it... It's the goobus
0: and gallant of pop production.
1: Yeah, okay. I finally have an answer for you. So this is not something I personally want, but I think that if I was to be a fortune teller, I could see... Antonoff being tapped to do some production with you two Cause oh, you yeah. two are very lost at sea right now in terms of like, what do we want to sound like? Let's not work with, Eno and Lanois after. Yeah. Decade. Right. Let's and like the last anyone. couple
0: records, they have like all those uh, different producers just like, yeah, they really just got deep in the rabbit hole of, okay, I guess we'll work with Ryan Tedder. Uh, I guess, you know, it's just, yeah, right. And like, it's the exact opposite of what they should do. They should not be look, they should probably look more internally than externally. But I imagine, uh, in a lot of ways, they feel like they need the outside pressure and also the way they work. They're, per, they're How I mean, I, guess, I imagine we're, we're both big YouTube people, like they have like such a weird way of writing. So that they yeah. almost need like outside people to kind of be like a judge yeah. of what they're doing.
1: Here's a really fun bit of info. Fun fun for the U2 heads uh, where apparently Bono and Edge had like a rough draft of how to dismantle an atomic bomb in the early 2000s. And they were like, hey, yeah, this feels good. And then they gave it to – bless their hearts – uh, Adam Clayton and Larry Mullen Jr., the rhythm section. And it was act- apparently Adam and Larry looking at the rough draft of how to dismantle an atomic bomb, being like, this isn't that good, you guys. And this is apparently true. They it, There was apparently, um, I think it was Steve Lillywhite mediating this, this conflict. And it was like Bono and Edge being like, we feel good about this. And Larry and Adam being like, mm, no, we don't. And I think Lily White, uh, if I'm getting the producer right for this mediator uh, arbitration session, was like, mm, "I got to get to the rhythm section, back to work in the studio." And so for how to dismantle an atomic bomb to get where it is, which is like, it's a pretty, it's a pretty good YouTube record. Yeah,
0: it's a solid it's, it's it's almost like the most how do I put this it's kind of like the most normal U2 album if you just kind of like averaged out everything they ever did up to that point you just end up with that record it's a little bit of all the things they had done
1: It's very normal, good, fine, really good song moments. And like to imagine that there was a worse version that Bono and Edge wanted to put out is like, oh my God.
0: I I mean, I got to assume like, I mean, I've heard like some, because they've released like some demos and early versions of a few of those songs. I remember hearing like whatever the earlier version of Vertigo was and be like, yeah, this isn't quite there. Like it really definitely need to be punched up a little and I imagine like that was the result of the process getting to the version of vertigo we know, which is kind of like the last like, big hit they had. It's kind of, uh, it's, it's weird how like the Rolling Stones and u two catalogs like line up in a lot of ways. So like that would be like their equivalent of start me up, which is the last really big Rolling Stones hit, but they kind of hit around the same point of their uh, body of work. Chronologically speaking.
1: Yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. Vertigo is their start me up. That's, that's very true. I think, uh, to another, another moment where I think back to, oh, when, when artists choose deliberately to dull their edges in hopes of like, I don't know, people pleasing, like, I think to the record they made after that, um, in No Line on the Horizon, Breathe originally had like a set of lyrics about Nelson Mandela, so it was gonna be more political and then th- it just became this like vague, vague song of Bono trying on different characters as he <sighs> does on the rest of No Line and it's also, like how
0: do you feel about No Line on the Horizon more broadly?
1: No Man on the Horizon is funny enough a grower because that's really their last record where they just want to do weird shit with, you know, and I find it interesting. Uh, I have to agree with the arguments where it's like they were promising a really experimental record. It's it's not as experimental as Zeropa, but I find it more sonically interesting than how to dismantle an atomic bomb. And then from yeah. no line, they scrapped it and was like, let's be so, so safe that we are boring. <laughs>
0: it's such a confused record because it really, it's the record that they end up with is like this weird compromise where you have like some songs that are kind of gesturing towards what they initially were trying to do. You get a few songs that, you know you get like the kind of crass cowardice we're like oh god we need a hit we need a hit so bad and you know like the, the single for that record is get on your boots which isn't like a bad song but it's also not a good song and is this so like nakedly trying to be like well we need to make vertigo too but we also want to you know it's just like it's just too many things happening at once there they, it's more of an idea of a song than a song um and then there's like songs I think are just like awful on it, like some of the worst songs I've ever did. Like that song "Stand Up Comedy." I, I just absolutely hate that song. It's so clunky and awful.
1: Yeah, it's like whenever uh, Bono does sing talking, it's kind of like, uh oh, we gotta yeah. watch out for this one. That's where I, I think one of the ways that you two could course correct is. Um, if Larry and Adam get more points in the vote, (laughs) they seem to be a good canary in the coal mine. Um, My understanding
0: is also with that record is that Bono was very rarely around during the writing. So they would just be like working up this music. Bono would show up to finish it. Cause he like, he was just just one of those times in in Bono's life where he was just doing like a whole bunch of extracurriculars. He was doing a lot of political work, you know, Bono things. (laughs) <laughs> um, so yeah it, it's it's ultimately not really like a band collaboration in the way the others were um what, what, what let's just skip songs of innocence because i feel like that's kind of chewed over but what do you think of songs of experience because that one is the most recent one and i feel like kind of is also done in a similarly similarly piecemeal way
1: Song of Experience, just sort of like, I've blanked it out of my mind. It was just no moment I could grasp onto. I will say out of that one-two shot of innocence and experience, Raised by Wolves is a really increasingly rare good moment that you two have as songwriters. Raised by Wolves is just so... It's, yeah, it actually has drama. It knows... It, it's not overproduced. It knows when to pull back. Like that's really that one song from, from innocence and experience that I constantly go back to.
0: Face down on a pillow of shame. There's some girls with a needle trying to spell my name. My body's not a canvas.
1: My body's now a toilet wall.
0: I mean, I think the concept of Songs of Innocence is really strong, and there. I mean, I think Cedarwood Road is also pretty successful, Um, and those two really kind of aim for. uh, There's, there's, it's the right level of drama. It's the right level of like engaging with this very bleak time in the history of Ireland that coincides with their youth. Um, Songs of Experience is so. I think it really has that kind of confused thing where they don't know exactly what record they're making. And it just ends up being like four or five records of, it feels like a compilation. Um, And there's some songs on it. I like a lot. I like American soul. Uh, That one, I think goes pretty hard, even though it has some clunky bits.
1: Oh, that's kind of like the, the sequel to their Kendrick Lamar collaboration, right?
0: Right. He does the intro on it. Yeah. Right. So it's like the, the, the chorus, that song is like a, is the same as the one from uh, XXX, but it's song completely differently. Like. There's a moment in a life where a soul can die And a person in a country when you believe the lie the lie, the lie the lie, the lie There's a promise in the heart Will you be my sanctuary?
1: I prefer the damn side to that collab than American soul. American soul was definitely the like, this is what we perform on the tonight show song on the record.
0: Yeah. But there, Oh God, it's funny. Cause the, the, one of the singles from the record is called get out of your own way. And it's like, listen to your own advice. Get out wow. of your own way.
1: Wow. Yeah. yeah I mean, I'm looking at the
0: track listing right now and there's like songs like I, I, I like, but nothing that I really love. There's songs like, I don't have a problem with the blackout. Besides, there's some really bad lyrics in the blackout. Uh, There is a light is okay. Red flag day is okay. Uh, You know, it's mostly okay. And whereas I think the uh, songs of innocence uh, reaches higher and probably would have been received much better if they hadn't done the apple thing and if they had just promoted it in a low-key way like hey yeah we made a we were we decided to like just kind of dial it back do like like a back to basics record thinking about us growing up but they just did everything wrong and it's not the first time or the last time we'll do everything wrong
1: yeah, it's such a self-conscious record, and like, I'll give Jack Antonoff one thing—he doesn't sound self-conscious. He sounds mediocre to me, but he doesn't sound self-conscious. But yeah, in terms of you two, like, they need to stop producer shopping like this. Uh, I, I fear that they'll just be like, "Let's just work with with Jack and see where it goes." I do- and I'm, I, I just kind of want you two to just do a bare bones recorded live to tape record. Even if it's an EP, just like avoid the production missteps. And uh, yes, give Larry and Adam more votes. Uh, Bono continually gets to squeak in a song like Who's Gonna Ride Your Wild Horses onto a record where the rest of the band are like, Bono, and he's like, but it's so beautiful. And then he wins. (laughs) So Bono, I feel like has been... Yeah, I would love to see more votes go to the rhythm section. I, I, yeah,
0: I think more than anything, they just need to be like they just need to be okay with a record not being like a hit record that doesn't that they're past that point. Like they're they're they, they, I think that they were really fighting against being a legacy artist in a very noble but ultimately self-defeating way. And I think I think the thing that would probably go over the best the, the 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 place where they're most likely to have critical and commercial success is if they just were like fuck it we're just doing an uncompromising record we're just going to make an adult album that speaks to who we are now not trying to be down with the kids not trying to get on the radio just you two doing you two in like the 2020s
1: yeah, yeah, this, to to some extent I think that's what Foo Fighters are doing better than you two. Oh my god, amazing,
0: theory. amazing segue. We <laughs> That was the next thing on the on the docket is the Dave Grohl Industrial Complex as you put it.
1: Yeah, yeah. See see I I can play uh absolute chess professional. Not checkers. <laughs> yeah, um yeah, I guess Foo Fighters are like just around that that like mid 2000s period where you two were at it's except their 10th album. Yeah, and I don't see that self-doubt or confusion in what Foo Fighters are doing. They they've graciously accepted the mantle of dad rock and not only that, but for Dave Grohl to now like be hawking his wares, being like I've got the I'm helping my mom with her book, and now it's a docuseries. And here's a documentary about touring. And also, we did an A side of BG's covers. Like, they're just doing what they want. They're not trying to, mm, what will get us higher on the chart position? Mm, I don't know. Right. And
0: I think maybe that comes from the position of them being like, kind of self-assured that if they give a, a single to like rock radio rock radio is gonna play it is rock radio is to some extent a foo fighters delivery mechanism
1: <laughs> yeah no kidding whereas you uh... too
0: i think you know was in some other acts like kind of have like they don't have that assurance but foo fighters i think um I mean, I, I feel like probably like a lot of people around my, age, especially like I like the earlier Foo Fighters and then it's kind of like hit or miss throughout. And I think around the fourth or fifth record, they just really settled into being this very meat and potatoes rock band. And I really appreciate them being that band. I feel I, I, the thing I always think about about them is they're kind of like the Tom Petty of they're like Gen X Tom Petty. Um, like they're just going to make a whole bunch of songs uh like they're they'll always have at least one good hit per record uh they'll they'll go out on tour and just you know play the hits and just give people a good time it's like not you know it's not artless but it's not like arty either uh
1: yeah i would say like foo fighters they haven't they're not at the point where they have dovetailed into let's have 10 producers on 11 songs and have it be a mismatched uneven effort like they they're very consistent like they they are they're at that point of their dad rock years where now they have like a full-time keyboard player like their band (laughs) photos every few album cycles just get bigger and bigger what's that there's
0: like seven of them now
1: yeah yeah they're they're multiplying it's like gremlins
0: yeah and if you join foo fighters you're a foo fighter for life basically like Dave Grohl will give you a very good job stability. You can, you you can be like Pat Smear and like come in and out of the band. You're always a Foo
1: Fighter. Yeah. Foo Fighters seem like a better unit right now. Like if I was in the business of being a rhythm guitarist, I'd rather be in the Foo Fighter side where it's like, we're just doing what we want, baby. Even if it's, like medicine at midnight. I medicine at midnight. I listened to uh, before hopping on your your show, and I was like, "Meh," but at the same time, I, it doesn't make me not enjoy Foo Fighters overall or Dave Grohl's, uh the Dave Grohl cinematic universe. Yeah.
0: Like totally affable guy, and I think the thing with Foo Fighters stuff is it's never like bad. It's always like totally like, oh, yeah, this is fine. I'm not like way into this, but this is totally fine. This is like, you know, the worst they are is like competent. And I, the, the new record, Medicine at Midnight, which they did with Greg Kirsten, who I think is probably another producer that YouTube probably has uh, at least an email chain going with. Um, I appreciate them kind of like, you know what, we've never really done anything with kind of a disco swing to it. Why don't we start doing that a little? I appreciate that at this point, like that, they're still kind of like mixing it up a little, you know, and I mean, it's also a good strategy to kind of stay on the radio because there's a, a little bit more of that energy now.
1: Water the floor moment, the name escapes me, but I was like, oh, this feels different for them.
0: Yeah, there's yeah. a couple of the title track for sure, like the opening song. And then they, the, in the previous episode, uh, I had Sadie Dupuis on and we were talking about that one uh, Making a Fire, the two different versions of Making a Fire. Um, Another thing, like because she's actually like played shows with them, and there's another person who uh, I had on a while ago, uh, Norman Brandon, and like they they both have had like professional experience with them, and I've heard from other people like I've never heard anyone have a bad experience with the Foo Fighters. Everyone's always like, yeah, they're like really great and welcoming people, and even if like you know you end up like not working with them or if you end up, you know, I've just never heard of anyone having a bad experience with the Foo Fighters.
1: Yeah. And you know what, just the same way that we see Tom Hanks stickiness in the film industry, like, um, Foo Fighters have that stickiness and oh God,
0: yeah, it totally the Tom Hanks of rock music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like they call him nicest man in rock, but it's, it's really, he's just, he's doing the Tom Hanks playbook. He's just like, he's, he's being himself. He's self-assured, but also aware of the audience. Like, like you just see so many moments, time to time, where it's like, oh, Dave, girl's doing barbecue for, just for fun, or, hey, Dave, girl drank a fan's beer. Oh, what an ordinary guy. Like, there, yeah, of course, there's some tactical stuff to it. Like, uh, and, and there's always I,
0: the thing where it's like, like you know, he he doesn't have to tell you that he was in Nirvana, but and he's not distancing himself from that. But it's it's just the right balance of like he was in Nirvana.
1: Yeah, it was a very I mean,
0: tasteful balance of of that being in the background of everything.
1: Yeah, I think that's an echo of like one of his influences and now friends, Paul McCartney. Where like Paul McCartney, like always underplays that he's a Beatle in every interview. Right, because and... everybody
0: knows he he doesn't need you. Yeah. He doesn't need to say it. It's like it's it's the it's the it's his entire context of living.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so for for Dave Grohl, I feel like that's that's an element of the of the Dave Grohl playbook where it's like everyone knows I'm in Nirvana, I, but Nirvana is done, and I'm 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 in this now. Not not in terms of like I don't ever mention Kurt Cobain to me ever again, but it's it's like. Yeah, that was me then, but this is me now. Like it seems right. to and be I, I
0: feel like he has, and I think McCartney too. Like it, it, you know, you just build out enough of a career outside of that thing that it's like it makes it easy to be chill about it. You know, Foo <laughs> Fighters is a band that has like like twenty big hits. Like they're on their tenth album. Uh, they can play arenas around the world. It's like the absolute like most assured you could be. The most at peace you can be like, oh yeah, and Asterix, I was also in this other band that was even more major.
1: Whereas, (laughs) you know,
0: I think the people who end up having like these resentments, like it's because like the rest of their career hasn't been, you know, as illustrious. So like Paul McCartney and Dave Grohl, it's probably just psychologically easier to be really chill.
1: Yeah, I, I think that with Dave Grohl and Foo Fighters too, like they... Their relationship with their fans is is so buddy buddy that they could do something like Dave Grohl being a, a judge on The Voice for a season. I think is like that iteration of what we have now of Dave Grohl as like host and friendliest guy in rock persona. Um,
0: Just be, he'll be in any documentary.
1: Yeah, yeah. And especially if he produces it, then he has all the publishing for all the songs that he'd put in, aka his own. So it's it's pretty, yeah, in terms of like making a documentary and save cost saving. Yeah, if you host it and produce it and put your own music in it, like, it's a it's a one stop shop. And yeah, I think, I think that it's it's still authentic to to them and that's why Foo Fighters never got that U2 level of backlash it's not like a bunch of critics feel betrayed by Foo Fighters growing to 19 members including a sousaphone player by 2030 or anything like that like there won't be this great backlash against them like U2 had because I think U2 were held more darling to a lot of people or people um like, YouTuber went from, like, super, super hip to, oh, not as hip. And then hip people who define their hipness in part by YouTube they <laughs> then started to slander them. But Foo Fighters has, has never been any one person's measure of showing how hip they are. Yeah, it's it's just, like, this is a good rock band. Yeah, it's fun. It's cool. They're so funny. So even if they have a misstep, like, I, I didn't enjoy... I haven't enjoyed an entire Foo Fighters album since... Like front to back, since Echo Sound's Patience and Grace, that's been a long time. Oh, the,
0: fact I, the one I like a lot, that's more later. I like the one after that, which is Wasting Light.
1: Oh, oh, scratch that. No, I really do like Wasting Light. Wasting Light is the last record I like yeah. front to back. I'm sorry, and if you that's the it.
0: seventh album. And then like the one, the, the, the two after that are kind of like very forgettable. Um,
1: yeah, it gets a little too samey after Wasting Light.
0: But wasting light has a bu- like uh, has a bunch of, I think some of the the best later Foo Fighters song. like Walk is on that one. That one's really good. Um, what else is on that one? Uh, like Arlandria uh, these days, like, 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 right? They have a lot of a lot of songs that like, they, that kind of end up becoming like uh, big parts of their live show. Uh, it's <laughs> I wonder if they think of that as being their octoo maybe like the later record that has like all these kind of like staples on it. Um, Oh, but I was going to say like the uh, the other goofus to Foo Fighters gallant who have uh, a career that spans almost the exact same length of time as Weezer. And, you know, they're both essentially just like radio rock bands. They're always going to give you a single that you can play. But Weezer does all these weird swings that makes it hard for people to stay with it. Whereas Dave Grohl never gives you a reason to cringe at him
1: yeah and that's where we see that self-consciousness again um making a band fumble the ball uh like weezer i've I've always been more of a songs person for weezer than full albums um it's funny because i know everyone will say what about pinkerton i i just haven't listened to pinkerton that's one of my my musical blind spots um but yeah blue album rocks for sure
0: yeah i mean Um, that 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 that's the one thing, anyone, anyway, that's unassailable. Like, they're the first Weezer record, really good. Pinkerton's a good record. And, like, but, the, I mean, I feel like there's, you know, we, my, I've never really had, like, a close relationship with Weezer like some people have. It seems silly to me because, to me, that band was always kind of a silly band. I mean, I remember being, because their first record came out when I was 14. And I remember even at that time, you're like, oh, this is kind of like the corporate version of Pavement. It's Kind of fun. <laughs> you know, having this harsh judgment, but also being into it. Um, but yeah, I mean, as they go along, I feel like they're, they're a singles band. They're a band that for some reason has never made a greatest hits album, but would have a very good greatest hits album because there's lots of songs you don't want by them, but like most of their singles, even into the, the weirder dark phases of their career, they always have like at least one good single usually.
1: Well, let me tell you the only Weezer show I have seen and will ever Willingly see. Uh, did you see their time machine tour?
0: No, I've only seen them. I've seen them play twice. They're both like Madison, Madison square garden shows. So they, it was just kind of like a generalized, like here are our songs kind of shows.
1: Okay. Let me walk you back. Time machine tour was like early 2010s and the premise is perfect. It played exactly to their strengths. Weezer did every single of theirs in reverse chronological order from pork and beans until hitting the blue album, after which point they played the blue album front to back.
0: Oh yeah. There you go. Perfect. Perfect.
1: That's genius. That's like, that's like them reading their own subreddit, being like, Man, I wish they just did a show of all their singles and the blue album only. Like that's they they were so in that moment self aware, being like, We know what you want and we're gonna deliver it.
0: The the last show I saw them play, I mean I saw them play like many, many years apart. So I think the first time I saw them play was like, I think they were touring for the red album. And it was just kind of like, oh, I've never seen Weezer. Let's go do this. Um, but the the more recent time, they played Madison Square Garden with Pixies and TV on the radio. So it's like, yeah, I've got to go see this. It's oh, oh, I think. Uh, no, no, I'm sorry. I think it's something else. Uh, the Interpol had Carsey headrest. Um, but yeah, it's like three very good bands together. Let's do it. You know, Uh And that show, you know, because I think they were technically promoting the Teal album, which is the covers album. So they played a few of those. uh, This like, you know, so they basically just played all their hits plus other people's hits and lots of pyro and lots of like, you know, sets. And it's just like a, a big production value, just like a big fun rock show. Um, and I feel like that's like really the sweet spot of them. It's it's you know they're a little goofy, they're a little just, but ultimately just very fun. It's I think that's just the energy that they really want to project, and it I think it really came through in that show.
1: Oh, well, that's cool. Yeah, I remember having like a generally good time at the Time Machine tour. Um, Weezer just aren't like a like a reference point to the same extent as Foo Fighters for me, where I like I love what they do melodically. I think Foo Fighters, yeah, Foo Fighters have put out way more consistent albums, um, and I think that like next to each other. I I enjoy Foo Fighters disc- discography way more, but the measure of Weezer's staying power is like, who do you hear more at karaoke? What are the like soul-bearing yelping moments at karaoke? Say it it's going to be so. one song. of the great
0: karaoke songs of the 90s.
1: Gonna be the Weezer song. Yeah, Buddy Holly also still slaps at karaoke.
0: I feel like I never see like uh, Foo Fighters uh, karaoke. I think I've seen people do Everlong and Monkey Wrench a couple times, but outside of that.
1: Oh yeah. Monkey Wrench, objectively the best Foo Fighters karaoke song. Cause that's the one where it's like, it's fast enough. Right. It's it not too repetitive. Part where it's, like, one more thing, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like that, yeah. that puts it like miles above even like best of you as a karaoke song. Like it's Monkey Wrench, hands down.
0: Yeah. Oh, you know, going back to that Weezer show, one of the things that was interesting about that is because there are these, like, different generations of, of Weezer fans. And there was actually a fair number of, like, teenagers there. Um, and so you get, like, the, this thing where it's like, oh, wow, like, Pork and Beans is a much bigger hit than I thought it was. People go, were going crazy for Pork and Beans.
1: I like that. Pork and Beans yeah. but it was it kind of came around like just before I was done high school so I was kind of like okay it's not hitting me like even Beverly Hills I'm more nostalgic for than Pork and Beans because that was kind of like um, for me it was a mid high school song versus a oh I got like adult responsibilities song
0: <laughs> yeah I think, I'm, I think I'm like 27 when Pork and Beans comes out I like that one I, I, there's that one and Troublemaker I think are, are, are pretty good like mid to later Weezer songs
1: the Green Album is definitely a good example of like, oh, it's not an album album, but it's a singles that are good on this album. Oh, yeah. Album. I mean,
0: so that, that has Island in the Sun, Hashpipe, Photograph.
1: Yeah. Boom, boom,
0: boom. Fantastic songs.
1: Yeah, there you go. Um, I feel like there's enough overlap between the Green Album and like Rock Band or Guitar Hero as well. Uh, actually, no. Say It Ain't So, I'm pretty sure, it was on a Guitar Hero or Rock Band game because that like cemented... Um, people who were only in diapers when Buddy Holly or the Blue Album came out. Uh, that cemented the diaper-wearing younger Weezer fans to like then belting out Say It Ain't So. Uh, so there are, these, there are these little moments where the band is smart. And I think you can still be authentic and business-savvy, just not when the business savvy part is better than your artistry cough jack antonoff cough (laughs) so with weezer yeah it's like to put a song like say it ain't so on one of those like music games like that's a moment where yeah like a whole you can hook a whole new gen or like get the the side of your fan base like me who only remembers some green album songs in my childhood and then it's like oh oh the blue album's a thing oh okay And I think that Foo Fighters are also aware of their legacy making. And part of legacy making is like, yeah, that like that transition of how do you get teenagers at a Weezer show? How do you get teens at a Foo Fighters show? There's like this hereditary aspect to it. And I I spoke of Dave Grohl um, being a disciple of Paul McCartney. And at the same time, Foo Fighters are Rush fans. And Rush is a band where you are born into it you 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 really have to have at least like ru- one rush CD in your house to then fall down the rabbit hole and what were that's your, what so I guess to, your
0: parents were rush people
1: that's a, the funny thing is they weren't but they had a CD with spirit of uh the spirit of radio on it and that's like that's all I needed like this this one touchstone and then down the well I went and I think <laughs> I think Foo Fighters are at this same stage now because I think like I accidentally really got my mom and my dad into Foo Fighters and maybe they follow them more than I do, which is a measure of not just Foo Fighters' graceful transition into dad rock, but I think they're aware of like the lineage and community side of, of music and to do something like, oh, like Dave Girl promoting his mom's book about rock bombs and then a docuseries, it's like, Making another like communal experience where, hey, a show about like parents and music, maybe watch it with your parents. I think like that's also part of the Dave Girl industrial complex, like making it a shared experience, like you want to share it with someone, probably your family members. And then strangely, Foo Fighters becomes part of your family and Dave Girl shows up <laughs> to your dinners, it's it's working though. it's Uncle it's Dave. Like, Yeah. Yeah. So I think that, yeah, like with U2, I'm definitely a U2 fan as big as I am um, because of my mom. That's definitely a band that she enjoyed their best of 1980 uh, to 1990 came out like right when I was impressionable enough to, to stick to it like water. And this isn't, this isn't true of everything my parents like I'm not a Rod Stewart fan. Sorry to my mom. Uh, I had some. Is this your path
0: to things like Depeche Mode as well?
1: Depeche Mode came about on my own. Uh, it's it's funny. Like I think what was a really key music discovery platform for me was Tumblr. Because Tumblr is actually how I got into Roxy Music. I didn't have like my parents didn't have like For Your Pleasure or um, Avalon in their vinyl collections growing up. It was purely out of Tumblr, um, and I was like, oh well, this. This teen I think who's cool in, in New York uh, says this band is great and I'm only living in the suburbs in Canada. So maybe it's like a way of, oh, what would it be like to to have all this non, non-suburban non culture in my life? <laughs> and yeah, like Tumblr also got me into like when I was 21, to be 21 and have like social media at your fingertips for music is really fun because that was the summer I ingested the Velvet Underground Nico, Loveless, um, and uh, that was that was such a that was such a fun moment of being like, hey, I wanna I wanna learn what isn't of my time. Okay, Tumblr, what have the you initiation. found? Initiation. Yeah, it's like, what are the runes? Like, tell me what I need to know. And yeah, it's all. It, it, it must have been a combination of some people's parents being into a certain album, or someone having the cool older sibling. I am that. I guess cool maybe music sibling. media
0: probably feeds in that too. So like, you know, oh, these these are records that are always like on lists and things.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, like, that's what it, I've it,
0: noticed a lot in like social, like, uh, like Instagram and Reddit music stuff, where you see like young people talking about things like they really do take like those kind of lists seriously, even if like they, they push back on it. It's still kind of like, okay, this is still the repertoire. Like I've noticed like uh, the, the last Rolling Stone, like 500 albums of all time that came out, I guess late last year. Uh, I voted in that I should say. Uh, But yeah, that one, I think like a, a lot, a lot of people have been kind of jumping off that to kind of fill in holes in their knowledge. But yeah, that 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 kind of uh it's is this kind of nice to know that these things can still be helpful rather than annoying
1: Yeah, I would even say that like, especially Music Tumblr in its heyday, like there was some like divergence from like the, the first iteration of the best 500 albums of all time as deemed by a certain amount of people at Rolling Stone and who left out a significant portion of excellent music. I'm yeah. really glad. That I feel like they, they, they
0: corrected a lot in the most recent one.
1: Yeah, I'm glad that was a really valuable exercise. So it's like in between that, those moments, it's like there's this other canon of uh, very online teens and young adults who are saying like "Loveless" is so good. Like in terms of like what what records from 1991 have the same staying power with like younger people or Gen Z than like "Loveless"? It's yeah, and it's funny because that record like, is
0: so timeless. It really just uh... Because it's so singular, it doesn't. There's not really any way for it to age. It just feels like it's always like something that has always existed and always will.
1: Yeah, and Loveless especially has like it's so entrenched in the meme world Mm -hmm. where you can just post like a washed out pink haze over Hank Hill and be like, "Oh, he's in his feelings." I get it.
0: I've noticed like a lot of that with Cocteau twins recently too. (laughs) Yeah, I
1: the,
0: love it. Yeah, it, it's kind of great. Like, there's a whole, this whole like pocket of music that's become like very evergreen, but also like, yeah, and, and the jokes about it are so reverential, but still really funny. I always love the, oh, God, what is the one where it's just like, you saved my life, and then it's just like nonsense, cocktail twins lyrics.
1: Oh, my God. Like, you saved my life. I'm literally a bunch of vowels. Yeah. Like, <laughs> something along those lines. It's funny, because I saw, like, I, I flew by a YouTube autoplay where it was like, if you were cool in the 80s in the UK, it was all about Smiths, New Order, and Cocteau Twins. And the Smiths and New Order do not have the same level of meme community that, like, Cocteau Twins or something.
0: love I think Smiths did, but I think Smiths probably feels played out now. And also people want to distance themselves from Morrissey.
1: Mm, yeah, having having an openly racist yeah. uh. Right. But, but there Isn't definitely was help?
0: like a long period of time where like Smiths was kind of like the go-to.
1: For for memes? For, like, yeah, you know? for memes
0: or just like internet. It was just to the point that I really resented it. <laughs> it was, like I mean, I like the Smiths, but like I, I'm definitely more of u A M U two partisan. So yeah. This, this kind of uh... right because it would always be like them in new order like for some reason for a while Smith's in new order really just had like a much uh, more powerful grasp on things and I feel like that's kind of become less fashionable people have kind of moved more towards like a shoegazy vibe
1: yeah I think there's there's something more relatable especially for like uh, crops of artists who like making music in their bedroom is all they can do but also it is what they can do with all this technology yeah. that's that's afforded to them. You can just like torrent, like I don't know, some some versions of production software.
0: Right? Did uh, you hear uh, that playlist I made that I called a uh, Dissociation Wave, where it's just like all these like v- v- very current, very young artists who are all doing like super vibey music, and it's like all that. It's like of course, like this whole wave of people are into like you know this the more abstract. Uh, aesthetics of of shoegaze and like more chill wave kind of things.
1: Oh, that's cool. I'll, I'll have to check it out. That's, that's a, that's a no from that's a not yet from me. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I mean, the, the, the jump off point for that for me was really just like, I really like crumb. Do you know crumb?
1: I do not.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. Definitely listen to the two crumb records. I think you're going to like those a lot.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I think you're exactly the demo for crumb.
1: Yeah. Oh, man.
0: But I, I think that's a good place to, to leave it. Uh, yeah. thank you so much for talking. Uh, how can people find you and all the things you do?
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm very online, most likely on Twitter. So you can follow me at Jill Kryeski, and just, just use my, my Polish last name from the episode title or description to, to figure <laughs> that out.
0: I'll, I'll put a link. Uh, the thing. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah like part of being polish means i have great seo no one steals my usernames but no one can spell it either so it's a double-edged sword i just have
0: to imagine like you're just walking around every day krajewski
1: oh every graduation of my life like even when i die like my loved one will be like i'll miss you krajewski and then my breath will run out before i have the chance to correct them